Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. Stott passed away July 27th in 2011. He leaves behind a legacy carried by scholars and pastors equipped by Langham to preach the transforming truths of the Bible. He was an honorary chaplain to the Queen from 1959 to 1991. John Stott was a pastor to pastors, a servant of the global church, and an author of more than 50 books. He dedicated his life and earnings to seed and grow the ministry of Langham Partnership. Today, John Stott presents a study on the word propitiation. The sermon today is on that unpronounceable, unfashionable, and unintelligible word, propitiation. But the fact is that last Sunday morning, we began a series of six sermons entitled, Great Words of Salvation, under the title, Think of a Word. And so the powers that be, that is to say, Richard and his merry men, have thought of a word this morning and have decreed that I should preach on it. So here it is, the word propitiation. The truth is that we hardly ever use it nowadays unless we go to an Anglican Holy Communion service in which the Book of Common Prayer from 1662 is used, in which case when the comfortable words are recited we hear the phrase, listen also to what John said, and there is the quotation, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. But most theologians fight shy of the word today, and they look instead for a word which they regard as being more respectable. So the Revised Standard Version, for example, translates the phrase, the expiation of our sins. The New English Bible translates it, the remedy for the defilement of our sins. And even you may have noticed when the lesson was read earlier by Annie from the New International Version, propitiation is avoided, and in its place is the phrase, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It almost seems as if any paraphrase will do, so long as we avoid the unpopular word, propitiation. But I want to begin by asking, why is there this surprising antipathy to the word propitiation? Well, it's not difficult to answer that question. To propitiate, as I suppose we all know, means to appease or pacify somebody's anger. Whether that person is a human being, or might be an evil spirit, or might be God himself, to propitiate is to appease their anger. 
It is to turn away their wrath. It is to make them propitious. That is to say, favorably inclined towards us. But people immediately object. Is that the kind of God the Christians believe in? Do we believe in a cruel ogre who is quickly enraged and who needs to be pacified or he will destroy us? Is our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, no different from pagan deities because his anger is always needing to be pacified? Well, that is an understandable question, and I'm glad that many people ask it today. And in order to make clear that this is not the kind of God we believe in, they drop the word propitiation from their vocabulary, and what is needed, they argue, is not that God must be propitiated, it is rather that sin must be expiated or, if you like, cancelled or removed. And they develop a linguistic argument, at least the theologians do, about the Hebrew and the Greek words that are translated like this, and they indicate that that is not what is meant, that it is not a reference to the propitiation of God. Now, I want to suggest to you, friends, this morning, that there is another and a better way to handle this particular problem. And this way is not to jettison the word propitiation, but to redeem it, to purge it from all unworthy notions, and to insist that, according to the New Testament, there is a Christian notion of propitiation which is entirely free of the crudities and the vulgarities which are found in pagan notions of propitiation. And this is a notion that glorifies God as being himself the author of the Christian propitiation. Well, after that rather long-winded introduction, maybe you'd be good enough to turn to my text, and you'll find it in the Church Bibles on page 1000. 227. <clears throat> 1227. This is the first letter of John, chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 John 4:10. This is love. John says, this is the meaning of love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. True love is his love for us, not our love for him. Our love for him is only a response to his love for us. So this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and proved his love for us by sending his Son as an atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. A wonderful verse. Now, if we think clearly, and if we distinguish clearly from pagan and Christian notions of propitiation, 
then we need to ask three questions about the word propitiation. First, why is a propitiation necessary? That's the basic question. Two, who takes the initiative in providing this propitiation? And three, what is the propitiatory sacrifice on the ground of which forgiveness is possible? There are the three questions we're going to look at before we conclude. Firstly, question one, why is a propitiation of God necessary? Well, the pagan answer is plain. A propitiation is necessary because the gods or the spirits in animistic cultures are malign and they are malicious. They are also irritable as well. They fly off the handle at a moment's notice. Moreover, their bad temper is entirely arbitrary and unpredictable. You never know what is going to provoke them next, and you never know when their next outbreak of rage or anger will take place. So in consequence, these pagans go on to say, there is only one safe procedure. There is only one way of protecting ourselves against the capricious anger of the gods, and that is to bring them offerings and hope that that will pacify them. Now that's the pagan answer to the question, why is a propitiation necessary? It's because the gods are bad-tempered, arbitrary and unpredictable. Well, I hope already that there is an outraged response from every Christian mind and heart in church this morning. The living and the true God who has revealed himself fully and finally in his Son, Jesus Christ, is totally unlike this caricature. What scripture calls the wrath of God, the anger of God, is quite, quite different from the anger of these pagan deities or evil spirits. God's anger is neither malice nor spite, nor is it irritability, nor is it bad temper, nor is it ever arbitrary or unpredictable. On the contrary, God's anger is aroused by one thing only, and that is evil. And evil always arouses the anger or displeasure of God. God's anger is righteous anger, and it is aroused by evil alone. Further, God's wrath is not, and I think there may be one or two theological students here who know the name of C.H. Dodd, who is a well-known theologian in this country in the 40s and 50s, one of the leaders in the translation of the New English Bible. And Professor Dodd used to say that the anger of God is not personal at all. It is an impersonal process of cause and effect in a moral universe. Well, we venture to disagree with Professor Dodd because the anger of God is personal, according to the New Testament. The wrath of God is his steady, 
unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising uh, reaction to evil or sin. So we know exactly where we are. God absolutely refuses to negotiate with evil, let alone to come to terms with it. So the reason why a propitiation is necessary is that God's wrath, his righteous displeasure, rests implacably on evil wherever it may be found. So if God's wrath cannot be turned away somehow, we shall be consumed by it. Now that is not very popular doctrine, but it's very plainly taught in Scripture, which ought to be our rule and our guide. But let us purge the anger of God from all the vulgarities and crudities of pagan notions. God's wrath is his uncompromising reaction to evil. Because God is a God of moral character. He is not sentimental. Of course he is a God of love as we shall come to in a moment. But his love is not incompatible with his wrath against evil. So that's question one. Now question two. Who takes the initiative to propitiate God? If God's anger is real... If God's anger needs to be propitiated or turned away, who does it? And the answer, he does it himself. Now when I say that, and it is a most glorious truth, you will realize immediately the second distinction between pagan and Christian notions of propitiation. When the pagan is asked, well, who's going to take the initiative to propitiate your gods? Their answer is, we are. After all, they say, we have provoked the gods, so we must pacify the gods. We must be diligent in the presentation of our propitiatory offerings and in the performance of the required rituals. And hopefully, if we do that conscientiously, God's anger will be turned away. And so in pagan cultures, it is human beings who have to propitiate the anger of the gods or of the evil spirits. But once again, any instructed Christian who is in church this morning will immediately object, no, 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 no. That is not the meaning of the Christian propitiation. The truth is the exact opposite. It is not we who in fear of the gods try to propitiate them. It is God himself in his own love for us who determines to propitiate and turn away his own anger. So I come back to my text. This is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us. And he took the initiative and he sent his son and came himself in the giving of his son in or for the propitiation of our sins. P.T. Forsyth, the congregational scholar, theologian, at the beginning of this century, <clears throat> put it clearly, the atonement did not procure grace, 
He didn't persuade God to be gracious. The atonement flowed from grace. Grace led to the atonement. The atonement did not make God gracious. He was gracious already. Or I could put the truth another way. The truth is not that God loves us because Christ died for us. The truth is that Christ died for us because God loves us. It's the exact opposite to what many people think. So why is an atonement necessary? Or a propitiation necessary? Answer, because of the wrath of God. Who takes the initiative to propitiate God? Answer, the love of God. It is the love of God that propitiates the wrath of God. It is God who propitiates himself. And that is the marvelous truth of Scripture. Now we come to our third question. What is this propitiatory offering? <clears throat> On the ground of which, we'll wait a moment, we're so sorry when babies sometimes have to be taken out. It's so hard on mummy, don't you think? So we're grateful for that. So what is the propitiatory offering on the ground of which the propitiation takes place and God turns away his wrath? Well, once again, pagans are ready with their answer. They will offer to the gods whatever they think will please and placate them. So they bring fruit, flowers, vegetables or sweets. They bring animal sacrifices and even a horrifying abomination they have sometimes been known to bring a child sacrifice. And by the way, I think I need this uh, little digression. We mustn't think of the Old Testament sacrificial system as if it were Israel trying to placate Yahweh. The fundamental truth about the Old Testament sacrificial system is that God himself provided it. God said, I have given it to you. I've given you the shedding of blood on the sacrifice, or on the altar, for the atonement of sin. So God is the author of that sacrificial system, not Israel. Now, more sophisticated pagans today bring their offerings to God. They come to church, they bring their good deeds, they bring their religious observances, and they hope by these means to pacify the anger of God. But once again we say, no, no, no. It is absolutely impossible to do it in that way. Verse 10, God sent his Son. That's my text. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And what did he do? He sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in giving his son, he gave himself. He went to the cross, as we're thinking, of course, on Good Friday, of his own free volition. He made our sins his own in such a way on the cross that he paid the penalty that our sins had deserved. We even read that he was made sin with our sins and that he became a curse in our place. Now it is true that God was in Christ doing it. And it is hard for us to understand how God can have been in Christ 
when he made Christ to be sin and a curse for us. And this is the ultimate paradox of the atonement and the ultimate mystery of the atonement, that we must never hold one without the other. God was in Christ and he made Christ to be sin for us. Both those affirmations are true and we have to hold them together. Now let me recapitulate for a few minutes and then try to suggest why all this is important. Here are three fundamental contrasts between pagan notions of propitiation and the Christian or biblical doctrine of propitiation. First, why was a propitiation necessary? Not because the gods are bad-tempered and irritable, but because God's righteous anger rests upon evil and sin. Secondly, who must take the initiative to remedy this situation? Answer, not we by anything that we can do, but God himself has done it in his great love for sinners like us. Question three, what is the propitiatory sacrifice that takes away sin? Answer, not our paltry offerings, whether animal, vegetable or mineral, but the supreme sacrifice that he made, God giving himself on the cross when he gave his son. Now, do you notice that in all those three questions and answers, God himself is at the center? It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. Again, it is God himself who in his holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And thirdly, it is God himself who in the person of his Son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus, God's love gave God's Son to propitiate God's wrath. It was God, through God, propitiating God. It's an amazing truth. And I hope we shall reflect upon it on Good Friday and fall down and worship. Now, friends, the question, as I conclude, is why do we need to make these distinctions between pagan notions of propitiation and the Christian or biblical understanding? Does it really matter? Aren't these things irrelevant nitpickings? Are they not very unpractical theologizings? Do they really matter at the end of the 20th century? Well, I want to say, yes, they do matter. And only the distinctively Christian doctrine of propitiation will safeguard two truths, the first about ourselves and the second about God. First, the truth about ourselves. What God's propitiation of God tells us is that we are willful and disobedient creatures, that we have rebelled against God's love, that we have provoked his anger, and that we deserve his judgment. Now, those may seem hard sayings, but they are the truth, and they are taught on almost every page of the Bible. 
And they are part of the Christian tradition as it has been handed down from generation to generation. So because of these, if these things are true, that we've provoked the anger of God against our rebellion, then we are in a truly desperate plight. Unless God's wrath has been or can be propitiated and turned away, then we shall be consumed. Our God is a consuming fire. And all the inadequate remedies that are being offered these days for uh, our condition, their inadequacies are due to a superficial diagnosis. And it's only when you see that our plight is that God's his righteous anger rests upon us that we realize that no superficial remedy will do. Richard Niebuhr, uh, an American ethicist, round about the 1930s between the wars, in his own critique against theological liberalism, put it in these well-known words, that a God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. And that is the essence of liberalism, theological liberalism. And we affirm on the contrary that the God we believe in is the God of righteous anger against sin. And that unless his judgment is turned away, then we shall be lost forever. So you see, we safeguard the truth about ourselves if we have a true doctrine of propitiation. But then secondly, we safeguard the truth about God. Because without the Christian propitiation, all we're left with is a very anemic and a very weak and sentimental God who lacks all moral character. But the true God, the God of the propitiation we've been thinking about is a God of wrath and a God of love. And the cross is the supreme revelation in history of the holy love of God. Not holiness without love and not love without holiness. But as we look at the cross we see equally the love and the righteous anger of God against evil. On the cross... God's love propitiated God's wrath in the death of God's Son. And only so can we worship the living and the true God and fall down before him as a God of moral character, a God of holy love. Let us pray. These are profound truths on which we've been reflecting difficult truths, yet wonderful. We could reflect for just a moment or two before the final prayer on the wonder of the Christian propitiation for our sins. God's love turning away God's wrath through God's Son and his death on the cross. We venture now to pray, our Heavenly Father, 
as Holy Week begins today, and Good Friday is only a few days away, that during these sacred days, this Holy Week, all of us may enter more deeply into an understanding and experience of this propitiation for our sins, which you yourself have procured through the death of your Son. We ask that we may grow in understanding as we pray this for one another and for ourselves. For the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.